Well, find Genesis 25. If you're joining us tonight for the first time, we've been in the book of Genesis, uh, going chapter by chapter. We are up to chapter 25 this evening, and we will be starting in verse 19 and going down through the close of the chapter and talking uh, this evening on the subject matter, God's purposes march on. God's purposes march on. Uh, you'll recall last week we were looking at the death of Abraham and uh, how he breathed his last and finished his life satisfied with his years. So he ran the uh, good course, the good race, and he finished his fight and he received his reward and he was deeply satisfied as he was able to look over his life. He had lived a life of obedience to God without any regrets. And what an example he is to us in that regard. Uh, but you know what? Uh, God, as one writer has said, God uh, buries his saints, but his purposes march on. Amen? Nobody is indispensable to God's purposes. And so we pick up tonight with uh, Isaac, and we see more about Isaac and his family. Scripture says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was child, childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? 
But Jacob said, swear to me first. So, so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I want you to listen to the way that Dr. Kent Hughes begins this chapter. He says, we go to the movies, we sit down in our seat with our popcorn, and we put our soda pop and our cup holder at our seat, and then we have to sit there and watch movie trailers for 20 minutes before our movie that we paid for finally comes on to the big screen. That's true, isn't it? He says our great desire is if we could push the fast forward button and somehow or another get through all of the movie trailers and get on to the movie for which we've gone to see. Well, he goes on to say, but we must resist fast-forwarding through these verses that close out Genesis 25. These brief verses summarize in an unforgettable nutshell the future and significance of the lives, uh, or of the life rather, of Isaac's son Jacob. Folks, I want you to remember something that I told you at the outset of our study on the book of Genesis. Genesis is divided into 12 toledots. You might wonder if I'm stuttering. I'm not. Toledots in the Hebrew. Does anybody remember what those are or what it means? Any? Good, very good. The generations, exactly. Uh, Ten sections in the book of Genesis begin with, these are the generations of. Now, five of the Toledots are from primeval history. And what's primeval history? What's it referred to? The first 11 chapters of Genesis. So five go with that. And then we go into patriarchal history. Which makes up most of the book of Genesis. From Genesis 12 to 50, talking about the patriarchs. And the second five Toledots go with part, uh, patriarchal history. Okay? Folks, this movie trailer in these verses tonight are a movie in and of themselves though. And so we dare not hurry through this last section of chapter 25. 
These verses uh, deserve our utmost attention because, again, as I just mentioned, so much of what plays out in the rest of the book of Genesis and indeed in the rest of Old Testament history has its beginnings right here in these verses with Jacob and Esau. Now, I mentioned Dr. Kent Hughes. I must tell you in all honesty that I'm going to be very heavily dependent on his chapter tonight in his commentary on the book of Genesis. Because as I read his chapter on these verses, verses 19 to 34, I must say that it was one of the most fascinating reads that I have read in a long time. It's a page turner. And so if you do have his expositional commentary on the book of Genesis, I would commend this chapter to you. Go back and read the chapter he has on this section of verses. Now we're going to see lessons tonight that quite frankly do not come out of the strengths of Jacob and Esau, but out of their weaknesses and out of their faults. You know, as we're reading the Bible, sometimes we don't always learn the best lessons out of people's strengths. We learn lessons out of weaknesses too, don't we? Kind of reminds me of when I was the associate pastor at Parkwood Baptist in Gastonia before coming to to Pitts. I, I served under Ned Matthews and Ned told me, he said, Scott, the advantage you're going to have as the associate pastor is you're not going to simply learn from my strengths, but he said, probably you're go- going to learn the most from me from my faults and my shortcomings. And that's true, isn't it? And we're going to learn a lot tonight from Jacob and Esau and from their faults and their shortcomings. Dr. Kent Hughes says that both men representing the elect and the non-elect show that both, even the elect, are hopelessly self-centered and incapable on their own of doing anything good consistently. Jacob is self-centered and scheming. And Esau is governed by fleshly appetites. But before we get into these two boys, let's begin tonight where the passage begins. It begins speaking of Isaac and Rebekah before Jacob and Esau are even born. Now folks, we get the impression from Genesis that Isaac was somewhat of a quiet and content figure. Isaac would probably not be chosen as leader of the month. Now true, he's the son of promise. But it almost seems as though Genesis leapfrogs over him to hurriedly get to Jacob. And then after Jacob, to Joseph. Genesis spends a lot of time talking about Abraham. 
And then a fairly brief amount of time on Isaac. And then a whole bunch of time on Jacob. And especially Joseph. So you kind of get the impression almost that Isaac is just sort of stuck in there. If he wasn't the son of promise, maybe he wouldn't even be mentioned hardly. I I don't want to imply that he's not an important figure. Obviously, he is an important figure. Because God's promises continued through him. Rebecca seems to be a much stronger person than Isaac. You would get that impression anyway. Remember last week what I said about Rebecca? When Abraham's servant went to, to find Isaac a wife and, and the servant prayed, God, uh, I trust that you will watch over my journey and lead me to a wife for my master's son. Uh, let the woman be your choice who comes out and says, Sir, would you like some water, but not only for you, but also for your camels? And remember what we said about that? The ancient wells, you would, you would go down steps in, into the well. And the camels could drink how much water? How much could they hold? 25 gallons. And how many of them are there? There's 10 of them. And, and Rebecca is carrying a water pot. And the ancient water pots... Uh, contain usually the water pots that the women carried to go out to get water for their herds uh, could carry three gallons of water. And so probably for about two hours, here's Rebecca walking down the staircase, getting water in a water pot, coming back up, dumping it out in the trough for the camels, going back, getting another, until all ten camels drink All of the water that they want. No doubt Rebecca was a woman of a pretty strong constitution. Physical constitution. And the text also tells us that she was a beautiful woman. Pretty good combination, right? What's he saying to you, Shirley? (laughs) you can backhand him if you want to okay we'll look the other way (laughs) so anyway you've got to be quite impressed with Rebecca I am I don't know about you but I'm very impressed with Rebecca Now, we also need to remember from last week that when Rebecca and the servant neared what was to be the promised land, Isaac was out in the field, came over to her, and so began a wonderful love story. Now, let's also remember that Rebecca agreed to make this journey with Abraham's servant, right? She's never been away from home in all likelihood. And just upon hearing about Abraham and his son Isaac and Isaac needing a wife, she agrees to make this journey and go and to become this man's wife. 
And so in many ways, Rebecca is a lot like her father-in-law, Abraham, who did the same thing. Who left his homeland in Ur and went to a new land that God was going to show him. So again, Rebecca is an impressive, uh, an impressive person. Now, I'm sure knowing that what God has revealed to Abraham and Isaac, the surprise here is that Rebecca, just like Sarah, remains childless. I'm sure that, that hearing about the promises of God to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars, Isaac and Rebekah would have naturally expected what? They would have expected that right after they got married, they would probably start having children. So that these promises of God would immediately begin to be fulfilled. But this is not the case at all. Rebecca is barren. Just like her mother-in-law Sarah had been. She's barren. Isaac and Rebecca married. Remember when Isaac was 40 years old. Now he's 60 years old. And they have no children. And here's Isaac's half-brother Ishmael. He has 12 sons. But here's the son of promise, Isaac, and he has none. You think probably in his mind he's beginning to do some comparisons? Maybe so. Folks, we stand back and read this account and we shake our heads wondering how in the world God is going to do all of this. How's God going to bring these promises to pass? But it's a reminder to us that this is God's work. God's purposes are going to march forward and they are not going to march forward through human effort. Through human strategy. God's going to do it. Folks, all through the Bible we are reminded of this. Whether we are reading about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob and Joseph or Moses or Samuel or David or Samson or John the Baptist or Jesus himself. God does things differently than what we would expect. God's ways are higher than our ways. Folks, this is is something we need to reckon with as we read the Bible. God does not operate the way that we do. God will bring all of His promises to pass. And when He does, I can guarantee you it will not be quite like you expected. There'll be some surprises along the way. But God is true to His Word. Amen? Well, the first thing I want you to see with me tonight is a prayer-answered birth. A prayer-answered birth. Go back and read with me again verse 19 and following. 
This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Again, here's Rebecca without child, just like Sarah had been. And what is it that Isaac does? What does Isaac do? He prays. Now folks, you've got to give Isaac credit for not doing what his mom and dad did. Right? Because when they were in the same situation, when his mom and dad were in the same situation, what did they do? Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. To have a child through Hagar. They didn't wait on God. Or they thought they were going to have to take matters into their own hands. Isaac doesn't do that. He prays to God. Had he maybe seen all the conflict in the family... That was caused over Ishmael and Hagar. I think perhaps he had seen some of that. And maybe in his own household now. He didn't want to go down that same route. Maybe Abraham told him about it. Maybe so. Son don't do what I did. (laughs) Exactly. And so Isaac turns to God in prayer. And the word for prayer here in the Hebrew is the very same word that is going to be used in the book of Exodus when we're told that Pharaoh wanted Moses to cry out to God on his behalf to remove the plagues from the land. In Exodus 7 through 10, Pharaoh pleaded with with Moses to go before God and to ask God to take away those gnats and then to take away those flies and whatever the the plague happened to be, uh, Pharaoh wanted Moses to cry out to God with prayers of intercession on behalf of the Egyptians. A very strong word. That's used here for crying out to God with prayers of intercession. That's what Abraham does. Passionate prayer. And I want you to remember how long have Abraham uh, how long have Isaac and Rebekah been married? Twenty years. So do you reckon that maybe he's been passionately crying out to God for most of those 20 years? I think he probably has. 
You see, folks, it's a reminder of what I've told you before reading through the book of Genesis. Oftentimes when we're in Genesis, we think between chapters, it's almost like the next day. But it's not like that. Between chapters, sometimes between verses in Genesis, it might be a a decade or two decades. It's been 20 years. And Isaac's been crying out to God. You know what I think of when I think of that? Turn with me over to Luke. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 in verse 1 it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's it a parable about? Persistent prayer. Persistent prayer and not giving up. Jesus tells a story about here's a judge, here's a a widow. She has no recourse of action other than going before. She can't pay off people. She can't pay the bribe or she doesn't have powerful people on her side. All she can do is go with persistence before the judge hoping that she's finally going to get justice. And Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge said. And his point is, if this unjust judge could be moved by persistence, how much more can the sovereign just judge of the universe be moved. The God of the universe is not like this judge. This judge was unjust. He was corrupt. He probably took bribes. But if there's a guy like this that can be moved by persistence, Jesus' point is how much more will the just judge of the universe respond to persistence? But here's the kicker. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What was Jesus saying? It takes faith to pray persistently, doesn't it? If you don't have faith, 
You're not going to pray and keep on praying. You're going to eventually give up. Isaac prays persistently for probably most of the 20 years. And so when Isaac and Rebekah find out that they are expecting, don't you imagine they were absolutely thrilled to death? I imagine so. Now, I think most ladies would tell us that no pregnancy is easy, right? But Rebecca's pregnancy here certainly wasn't. She knew that something was wrong. This was not like pregnancies she had seen in other women and heard about. Something different is going on here. The Hebrew text says that the children inside of her smashed, were smashing themselves together. The NIV says they were jostling together. These boys are struggling with one another before they even come out of the womb. Rebecca's womb was like a battlefield. Now, folks, let's remember, Rebecca is one tough lady. She's got a strong constitution. And yet she asks, what's going on with me? What's happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And so she goes before God and she asks God. And God tells her. And what is it that he tells her? Two nations are inside of you, and they're going to be against one another. In other words, Rebecca, what is going on inside of you is going to have far-reaching consequences from now on. Wow, I want you to think about that. Not only that, but God reveals to her that he is going to bypass the normal order of things. The younger nation will be stronger than the older's. The older will serve the younger. Now folks, what we see here is the biblical doctrine of election. This is a doctrine that some people don't like to talk about. But here it is, nonetheless. What we see is God's sovereignty. Man is not in control. God is in control. And God is bringing his purposes to pass. And and we see here a point that is repeated over and over again in the Bible. God chooses the second. Cain's offering was rejected, but his younger brother Abel's offering was accepted. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's sons, before Benjamin that is, was chosen above his older brothers. Judah, likewise, was chosen over his older brother. The Lord tells us in the New Testament that the second birth is absolutely necessary. 
And turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And pick up reading with me in verse 27. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. Tradition does not determine grace. Convention does not dictate grace. Neither does giftedness. Neither do natural endowments. God's choice went beyond the individual too. God's Choice extended to the nation. Over in Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. God says, Jacob I've chosen, Esau I hated. And the context there of Malachi 1-2, God is not talking about just the individual brothers, but he's talking about their descendants, their respective nations that came out of them. Folks, we need to understand God's hatred of Esau. The word is used in a relative sense. God did not hate Esau and the Edomites, his descendants, but in comparison to his choice of Jacob and the Israelites, it's as though they were hated. By the way, Jesus used that same kind of language, didn't he? What did he say? If a man does not hate his father and mother and brother and sister, his wife and even his own children, he cannot be my disciple. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, we're told to love and honor our parents. But Jesus said, you've got to hate your parents. It it was a biblical idiom, an expression meaning comparison. Comparison to your love for God, it's as though you hate your parents. It's as though you hate your children. In comparison to how you love me. So that's how we have to understand those those terms. Now folks, I want to say to you too that God offers no apologies whatsoever and no explanations to election. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Would you turn with me to Romans 9? Romans chapter 9. 
Pick up reading with me in verse 6 of Romans 9. Paul says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived... At the same time by our father Isaac. Because again, what were they? They were twins. Yet, listen to this. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger. So oftentimes people, when you talk about the doctrine of election in the Bible, people say, well, it's because God sees into the future and he knows that you are going to choose him or you are going to do this or you are going to do that. And so that's why God did this in you. Is that what this says? No. He says here, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and And he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? 
Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued a law as the way of righteousness have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. See, as the scripture says, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's quite a chapter, isn't it? God will set his affections on who he will set his affections. And he will pass over others. And he will even use those that he passes over like Pharaoh and what he does in them, in his wrath, he will even do that in them so that those who are elect will see his choice of them all the greater and even be more grateful. And he says here, what if you don't like that? Well, he says, who are you to talk back to God? He's God and you're not. Right? Folks, election is God's doing whether we like it or not or whether we understand it or not. And God owes you and me no explanations and no apologies. When they came out of the womb, Esau was red. His name literally means hairy. And then the Edomites who were descended from him meant red. And so Esau was literally red and hairy. Now interestingly enough, Western Christianity has picked up on the Middle East prejudice against redheads. And so in medieval art... Guess what color of hair Judas Iscariot often has? Red. Any redheads in here? Okay, let's move on. Two dissimilar boys. That's what I want you to see secondly. Two dissimilar boys. These boys are as different As different can be. Esau was a man's man. He loved the outdoors. He loved hunting. No doubt he was was strong physically. He was the kind of man portrayed 
oftentimes at men's gatherings. I'm going to get in trouble here, okay? I've noticed at outings for men, the host and the speakers, you know, they'll have on rugged jeans and boots and untucked shirts and they'll have a four-day shadow of whiskers and a disheveled hair and a ball cap on and the speakers are always, and I mean always, somebody like an undercover law enforcement official, maybe undercover FBI, who blows things up and takes down bad guys and jumps off of moving vehicles and out of airplanes or he'll be a military hero or he'll be an athletic star. He'll love hunting and he'll tell you all about his recent kills. He'll drive a four-wheel drive truck with a lift kit on it and it's always a diesel truck. If you go to men's camps or men's meetings... Just watch to see if what I'm saying is true. And all the urban men who have been emasculated by city life sit there and hang on every word. (laughs) It's like, he's my hero now. (laughs) I want to be him. I'm serious. Guys, you go to these camps. Am I right? (laughs) Who I I have just described is Esau. That's the type of man that Esau was. He was a man's man. And we're told that the dad favored him because he liked to eat. Of Esau's wild game. Then we're told that Jacob was a quiet man. The name Jacob means one who grabs the heel. And it came to later mean a deceiver. Now initially the name referred to somebody. Who would serve on the heels of an army. He would be in the rear guard. And he would be a protector from behind. He would be on the heels of the men in front of him. But as time went on, the name took on a negative connotation. Heel grabber. In the sense of being an opportunist. Somebody who's going to take advantage of you and grab a hold of what was yours. Now apparently it was Jacob here who is responsible For the name to continue to take on that bad connotation. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says that in verse 27 the description of Jacob was actually somebody who was solid, controlled, level-headed, toughly dependable and a formidable, cool opponent. He could get the better of you before you even realized it. Now apparently Jacob loved to stay home and work around the farm and the house. 
And so naturally, as happens so oftentimes, parents will pick a favorite child. Now, folks, I'm convinced parents don't mean to do this. Parents don't love one child more than the other. But it's natural that we will tend to gravitate more to one child than the other. Maybe if that child shares more interests like us. We just sort of naturally gravitate that way. That's how Isaac and Rebecca are. Well, the third thing I want you to see. The plot begins to thicken. The plot begins to think thicken. Beginning in verse 29, the storyline that will occupy the rest of the Old Testament begins being cooked. You see, the stew wasn't the only thing being cooked. The life of Israel's history is being slow cooked here. Jacob is making a stew. He must have been somebody who liked to help his mom out in the kitchen. Esau's been out enjoying the outdoors and he's been hunting. He comes in hungry. Now in no way is he literally about to die. We're sure he's not about to die. But he's famished. And here's where we see the character of both boys come out. As I said at the beginning, neither son is going to be represented in the best light. Esau is governed by his appetite. What does he say? Give me some of that red stew. Now, the way it's worded, it's like it's brief and blunt, kind of like the character Esau is. He's his tough outdoor guy. Mm, mm, Give me some of that. I'm hungry. Give me that. Blunt, gruff, to the point. Jacob sees his opportunity. He might have even been expecting it. He's an opportunist. He's a heel grabber. He's ambitious in his own quiet way. Jacob closes the trap. You want some of my food? Fine. Sell me your birthright. Now Esau thinks no more of his birthright than to swear it on oath to Jacob. He does so without even considering what he's doing. He sits down to eat. He eats his fill. He gets up from the table, walks away, not even realizing what he's just done. As Hughes says, he despised the promise of God. He did not even realize what it was that he possessed. He thought nothing of it. It meant very little to him. As Hughes points out, Esau is fully culpable before God for what he did. He only has himself to blame. Yes, Jacob was shrewd in what he did. But Jacob was only able to do what he did because Esau cared so little about it. The passage here, you'll notice, doesn't condemn Jacob for what happens here. It condemns Esau. With simple words, it says, Esau despised his birthright. So again, think what you want to about Jacob, but the Bible lays the blame squarely at the feet of Esau. 
Jacob, on the other hand, understood exactly what it was he was obtaining. He valued God's word and God's promises. Now, the book of Hebrews, if I took time, I wanted to take time tonight to go over to the book of Hebrews to see what it tells us about Esau. The book of Hebrews tells us that Esau was a man who was governed by his fleshly appetites and that he was an immoral man. An immoral man governed by the flesh. Esau wastes what it is that God has given him. He wastes the gift the gifts of God. Here's Jacob. He understands the gifts of God and the promise of God. And here's Esau living only for the moment. You see, Jacob understands what the promise brings with it. It brings the future and a great inheritance. But Esau is a man who can't see past the end of his nose. These two men, these two brothers are like a parable. I mean, they're not a parable, they're real life characters. But I'm saying they're like a parable of all of humanity today. Because there's some people living who don't seem to be able to see past the end of their nose. They're living for this moment only. And then there's other people who realize the value of the future promise. No wonder Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, lay up your treasures in heaven and not on earth. Esau, it's it's all about the now. It's all about my fleshly appetites now. Jacob values the promise of God in the future. Now, I love how Hughes closes out this chapter. And we've got to close. I went longer tonight than I meant to. I almost never do that, do I? He says, are you offended by this story, scandalized by God's exercise of sovereign choice? If you are, it is because, first of all, you don't know yourself. You do not know how profoundly sinful you are in every dimension of your personality, mind, speech, actions. As Paul makes so unmistakably clear in Romans 3 that none of us are righteous, no, not one. We are spiritually dead left to ourselves. Secondly... If you are scandalized by this, you do not understand God. He is king, not us. God is not bound by our directions. He's not bound by our cultural conventions. He's not bound by our limited knowledge. He is free to dispense grace as he chooses. Third, if you're scandalized by this... You do not understand grace. Grace that is earned is not grace at all. 
Grace goes to the undeserving. Grace comes at God's discretion, not our directives. Amen? Amen. Comments or questions quickly, and then I'll close this in prayer. Yes. Go ahead, Jeremiah. Um, Jeremy. You what now? Sure. And we, we still see the, uh, the Arabs and the Jews going at one another. Go, really even goes back previous to this between Isaac and Ish- Ishmael. Yeah. Jeremy? Right? And, 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 and the Bible actually talks about taking out names that were written, doesn't it? That names were written from the foundation. Yes. Again, Romans 9, he says the vessels of wrath, God uses the vessels of wrath in his power against them to show the vessels of mercy how great the salvation is that he's given to them. So in other words... The redeemed of the Lord are to look at the vessels of wrath and be all the more grateful for the grace of God that's been shown to them. Read Romans 9. If you don't like the doctrine of election, just study. Study Romans 9 because it's there. You cannot get away from it. Read Ephesians 1. To deny the biblical doctrine of election, you would have to deny significant portions of Scripture. It's a biblical doctrine. It's probably the most hated doctrine by many people. Comments? Amen. What's your name? Matumba. From the okay. Do you know? Um, I've just gone blank. Ivadi. Do you know Ivadi in our church? Okay. Fantastic. How about that? Okay. Well, good to have you with us tonight. Matumbo? Matumba. Matumba. Okay. Okay. Amen. Amen. Do you live in the States now? I've lived here almost 30 years. Okay. 
okay? Amen. Amen. Well, good to have you with us tonight. Thank you, sir. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, the power of your word and the way that your Holy Spirit uses it to conform us more to the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your purposes in the world and in us. Your purposes and your promises that do not fail. You are true to your word. And Lord, that gives us great comfort as believers to know that we're in your hands and nothing can take us away from you. Nothing can separate us from your love. God, we pray that you would continue to teach us from this book of beginnings. Lord, we see that the Bible is so contemporary and applicable to our lives today. May we be people of the book. Psalm 1 says, if we are, we will be like trees planted by streams of water that will bear fruit in its season. Lord, you heard all the names. You know all of the people that we spoke of before needing prayer. And we want to cry out with intercession for them. Some with physical needs. Some with spiritual needs. You're the mighty God, the everlasting Father. The wonderful Counselor. You're the Prince of Peace. You're the refuge, our tower of strength, and a present help in time of trouble. You have a plan with each life. God, we pray that the people on our list would understand your great love for them. Lord, that you would bring about your healing. That you would bring about salvation where that is needed. Bring strength and comfort and encouragement. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.